the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour, 5 p.m., as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. You've probably seen a lot of the hubbub as mainstream media has done their best to spoon-feed news of uh, Caitlyn Jenner, also known as Bruce Jenner, making the debut on Vanity Fair cover, posing as a transgender woman in lingerie. It's the first we've seen of Jenner in his new gender since the former Olympic athlete announced plans to transition to life as a woman at the age of 65. And for many of us, a reminder of... Well, just a confused and changing society in which we live. A nation that, for those of us that perhaps are over over 50, wonder what's happened to our country. And uh, wanting to, at one level, engage in the fight to make America a Christian nation again. And yet, on the other hand, maybe being compelled to ask an even more important question. And that is, how can we, right where we live and work and play and engage do a better job of engaging the culture all around us. There was a time and an age when you had to get on an airplane with a passport and travel to another part of the world to engage in the mission field. And today, the mission field is literally right out your front door, almost anywhere you live in America, and certainly anywhere in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what of this idea of living missionally right where you live today? Well, we've invited... Jim Ramsey, the Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, to join us with some insights uh, to that very question. And Jim, a delight to have you on the program. It's good to be here. First, I'm curious about your own journey. You left high-tech for the mission field. I understand you and your family spent uh, 10 years as missionaries in Kazakhstan, and that's uh, that's quite a transition. Yes, it was. Um, we we felt called to mission from from an earlier age, but it wasn't like a, a major, you know, sudden surprise to us. We always knew we wanted to serve, but the Lord had provided the IT work as something I could do while I was preparing, working through seminary, and we were starting our family. But it was a change. We uh, were in our early thirties when we when we moved from a small town Kentucky to a city in Central Asia, in the country of Kazakhstan and served there for 10 years. And, of course, now you're here uh, back in the U.S. and serving as vice president of uh, Mission Ministries with the Mission Society, as we mentioned. And uh, your your background, I think, as a missionary qualifies you in many ways, uh, Jim, uniquely to help us better understand and address this question, because, as I suggested, it wasn't that many generations ago when engaging in missions work to other people and cultures and society in places that were very different of us meant getting a passport, hopping on an airplane, and heading overseas. And today, that largely means getting up and going to work in the morning, doesn't it? 
No doubt. I think that, uh, that missions has really become from everywhere to everywhere and that people can, can be involved in mission wherever they are. And I think uh, in some ways that's a positive. We still will always be people who will get on a plane and go because uh, there's some places in the world that will never hear the gospel if somebody doesn't do that because there's nobody around. But having said that, uh, we all know, I, I think you have to be in a cocoon uh, to not realize there are incredible needs and opportunities for sharing the gospel here in our own home country. Let's talk about attitudes concerning that very issue. I mean, there is a certain notion that believers have that we, we should live in such a fashion as we, we share our faith, we share the evangel or the, or the gospel with others. Uh, and yet, at least through the decade of the, the 80s and 90s, and, and maybe even to a certain degree today, um, a lot of uh, Christians um, do a good job at expressing our frustration over what we see going on in our culture and society today. Uh, you witnessed the news story that I shared um, at the top of the segment here. Uh, and we do a good job at that, and yet um, maybe our experience or our, our capacity to share our frustration is better honed than our capacity to actually share our faith. And again, at the end of the day, the question is, which of the two will have the greater impact on society around us, sharing our frustration or sharing our faith? I think you really hit on the, the crucial issue that I think the American church and the evangelical church in particular really is facing. I shared a story uh, in an article I wrote recently that, that really points this out. It was some years ago. We were still in Kazakhstan serving, and I had a, a friend who was on the faculty of a, of a small liberal arts college in the East here. And it was a college with a great Christian tradition, but like so many colleges, it had kind of wandered from that tradition in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he asked this question of me. They were about to engage some policies that were, were clearly in opposition to the biblical understanding of the faith. And, uh, and he was kind of fighting the policies and just getting really frustrated and, and feeling like he was fighting a losing battle. And he asked me this question. He said, I'm wondering if, if my mistake is trying to maintain the Christian identity of this institution, or should I learn what is it to live missionally in a non-Christian institution? And he was talking to me because as a missionary, he said, maybe I should have more of the thought of a missionary who doesn't expect the host culture to be Christian than to kind of try to fight for that. And I think that's the, the key question that, that we are faced as believers in this culture is, is which are we going to fight to, to maintain the culture? Or are we going to live missionally to invite people into a different uh, way of living? Well, certainly the mentality for many, many years, and we've seen this articulated at, at a national level, I mean, historically by the likes of, of a Jerry Falwell or the likes of a Pat Robertson and others, and that is that we there's a degree to which we have to fight to maintain the culture. Certainly that notion of being um, salt and light uh, makes sense at a degree. But I wonder if there's also a great degree, Jim, to which we kind of longingly look back toward a different time in America where we perceived it to be a Christian nation when, in fact, that's never really been entirely an, an accurate moniker for our country. And so it's almost as if we're, we're fighting to maintain something that, in the truest form, never really truly existed in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I have to ask that question. I know it, it's, it's not always popular to, to question that, but you think about that we sometimes do pine for the great years of the 50s when we were a Christian country, and yet... If you look at some of the things that were in place and the rules, some of the treatment of people in our country in the 1950s, I think all would agree it was far from Christian, um, especially if we look at some of the, the racial issues going on in our country at the time. So I think we, we sometimes have some selective memory. I, I don't 
mean them play. Therefore, there have been huge challenges, and certainly the the Christian faith has fallen out of favor with the dominant culture. Uh, but I think sometimes in our in our memory or our, our selective memory, uh, we kind of pine for the yesteryear. And I, I really question is that is that what God would have us do, or is He looking for us to forge? What does it look like to be a Christian in today's context rather than trying to recreate yesterday's context? And is that maybe because it's just easier to fall back to that position? There's a lot less uh, demanded of us in doing so. I mean, let's face it, we'll, we'll talk to any generation and talk about the good old days and say, well, the, the good old days. Are we talking about the good old days of the Cold War in the 1980s? Would that be the good old days of the Vietnam War in the 1970s? Would it be the good old days of, of uh, the, the spread of communism and, and enslaving the people throughout Europe in the 1980s? 1950s, the good old days of, of the 1940s during the Second World War? Which phase of the good old days are we referring to? So it, it seems as if you're right. It's not only a very selective memory, but sometimes maybe just simply an easier way to kind of default back to, because if mm-hmm. we can just um, vent our frustration over how things have changed, it really doesn't call upon us then to be engaged in the culture, to challenge the culture, to love the culture, to live, as you suggest, in a missional fashion, which means to understand that first and foremost, it is our job to be Christ's representatives on earth. And let's face it, there's a lot more work involved in doing that than just sitting back and complaining. I think so, and, and uh, one of my colleagues, Stan Self, uh, wrote recently, and I, I love this quote, he says, when we as evangelicals are so disheartened over the state of the Church in America, what are we bemoaning? Do we mourn the loss of Orthodox gospel preaching, or do we mourn the loss of our privileged place in society? Mm. And I think that's, that's a hard question, but I think we need to ask honestly, what, what are we upset about? Um, are we really upset about the true teachings of Christianity and the transformation that the gospel brings, or are we frustrated because the the kind of position of being the dominant um, the dominant understanding in the culture that being Christian was a culturally good and acceptable thing is that is that really what we're we're losing that that means there's a higher cost of the faith than maybe we we did sense thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, probably very true. And along with that, I think, uh, coincides this notion that, let's face it, missional living in a very unchristian or hostile environment, uh, and, and certainly Christians in China understand this, Christians in the Sudan, as we speak, understand what this is like, it comes at a higher cost. And so you're right. The question is, when we talk about paying the price, is the paying the price because we're being inconvenienced, or do we understand that our very faith itself requires us to pay a price, that there is a price? for being counted amongst those that name Jesus as Lord and Savior. So maybe it's a good point for us to pause and engage in some introspection. You know, I use the Bruce Jenner story as kind of a jumping-off point because everybody's been talking about it around the water cooler over the last 24 hours, and many bemoaning this, this direction in which society seems to be headed, and yet there is a bigger question here that remains unanswered for believers, and that is, um, do we long for the days of the Christian culture, or are we willing to influence the world around us uh, to understand what it really means to live out our faith missionally in a non-Christian environment? Our conversation today with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our visit as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
In our conversations with Jim Ramsey, Vice President of Mission Ministries at the Mission Society, we're talking about the challenges of living a missional life in modern-day America today. And, uh, Jim, certainly we've seen historically an effort in in trying to sort of uh, preserve uh, what America used to look like by means of changing laws in our country, certainly electing the right guy or gal to public office. And yet, in spite of those efforts that began in earnest in the 1970s and to a lesser degree, perhaps continue to this very day, uh, maybe we've slowed the demise towards uh, apostasy down, but certainly haven't prevented it or stopped it from happening, which maybe uh, maybe ought to call into question some of the methodology that we have used as believers uh, to to change society around us. And let me quickly add, I'm, I'm not suggesting here that we shouldn't try to be salt and light. We absolutely have, I believe, an obligation to do that. But at the core, if you want to change things, it really has to begin with changing the heart, doesn't it? I think so, and I and I would agree with with what you the kind of the caveat you said there is. I'm I'm certainly an advocate of Christians being involved in the public square. I think that that for us to isolate ourselves and say, well, you know, the whole country's going to going to pot, and we're just going to do individual evangelism and not care about who's elected, not care about what the issues are in our local in our local governments, our state governments, our federal government. I think that would be a big mistake. I think some of the question to me is the tone. Of, of the debate, I think sometimes evangelicals in these in these larger kind of culture wars, even the word culture war says something about about the approach. The, the tone is is very antagonistic. It, it's it's not attractive at all. And so, really, the only people that energize us are people who think like me. But it's not it's not going to be something that's going to make someone who who doesn't have faith really be interested in faith. And so, I think we have to recognize that it's it's our lives and our our tone uh, that really is going to make a difference. And, and as you said, that's going to happen at the relational level. Uh, now, let, let's put this in context. And again, your background as uh, having spent uh, the better part of a decade as a missionary in Kazakhstan, I think uniquely qualifies you to, to speak to this point. When, when you travel there with your family as a missionary, you're going into a country that had been under the cloak of communism for many, many years. And so there's a good percentage of people that live in the country that, that were good students of Marx and Lenin who were atheists. You have a nation that is 60, maybe 70% Islamic, a good percentage, probably 20, 25% uh, Russian Orthodox. And into that environment, you can you can certainly walk in and say, well, gee, you people don't think as I do. You don't believe as I do. What's the matter with you? Get your act together. I would suspect, though, that would not make you very effective as a missionary. So what are the lessons that you learned going into Kazakh society Jim, that that you can maybe help us better understand what we as believers in America need to do in dealing with a different kind of culture and society in which we live today. That that equally we we it, it's foreign to us to be sure, and yet as in need of the good news of the gospel of our Savior in America today, as as it was when you served in Kazakhstan. Yeah, I think that's that's the the key. Is that when we went to Kazakhstan, we expected a different culture. We didn't expect the host culture to behave as Christians. We we figured there was going to be good people, obviously, and there'd be good people in government and everything. But but there's, there was no expectation that the host, the dominant culture, the government systems were going to be supportive of of the gospel. And so, by losing that expectation, we weren't there to fight that battle. But we were there, as you said earlier, to win the hearts and and, and minds of people by living among them, by getting to know them, by being in discipling relationships and planting the, the community of faith there. And 
And I think, I think the community of faith, when people are living in faith in community, studying the Word and praying together and loving one another, it's extremely subversive. Uh, it, it really begins to change the culture from within, uh, as those people, as you said, become salt and light. But when we, we come at the culture in attack mode, then any time you go in attack mode, people go in defensive position, and that's, that's not going to be as appealing. So we, the, the difference is, we, at the Kazakhstan, we knew that, we expected that. Somehow, because America has, we, we've got the understanding of the so-called Christian nation, we don't expect that here, and we get offended when we come up against a hostile government, a hostile host culture, rather than just saying that's the way it is. So I think that's one thing we can learn from people, either missionaries or national believers, who have lived in contexts where there is not, where Christianity is not the dominant, the dominant culture. You use two words that are maybe key to this. You use the phrase discipling relationships. It's easy for us to enter into an environment that is not one that we believe is necessarily biblically based in nature and to launch into attack mode, meaning you shouldn't be going to mosque, you should be attending church with me on Sunday, etc., etc. I would imagine had that been your approach out the gate in Kazakhstan, you would not have been very successful at, at, at changing hearts and minds, but engaging in... My visa would not have been renewed. I would imagine so. But but engaging in discipling relationships, that also means that you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and be in contact with people at a level in which you're able to speak truth into their life, and that really means gaining their trust, doesn't it? Absolutely. I think that's, that's the key, is, is gaining trust putting ourselves intentionally in communities with people who are different than us. And that is, has not been traditionally part of the evangelical culture so much within America. We're good at that as missionaries, but our own culture here, I, I heard somebody once say, you know, take the cell phone test, um, look through your cell phone contact list, how many of those are not believers? Um, um, and so I think we, we don't sometimes, but by putting ourselves intentionally in community with people where we're just sharing life with them, as you said, that, that gains the, the trust and the relationship but then we can begin to share who we are in Christ. And, and that's, that really is the making fishers of men that I think Jesus invited his disciples to. So if we want to effectively influence the culture around us, not only from the salt and preservative standpoint, but, but ultimately from the evangelical standpoint in, in winning people for Christ and growing the church, then it sounds like you're suggesting, Jim, that we need to kind of take on the same mentality that the missionary does as he or she is preparing to go overseas, meaning that you know that you're going into an environment that may be hostile in some ways toward your belief system and the way you worship and the way you think and the way you behave, maybe not understanding of many of those values and approaches, and yet you are going into their environment where they are the dominant language, the dominant culture. And so typically a missionary takes time to, at the very least, understand the culture, maybe even take time to understand the language. Certainly if you're going to live amongst them, that's that's critically important. And then you, you learn how how to engage people from where they're at. That doesn't mean that you embrace what they think or do. That doesn't mean that to, to reach a Muslim you become one, but it does know, mean that you have to be, what, a little bit more over understanding in order to, to, to gain permission to speak truth into their life? I, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, that's the key is, is taking your time, listening, learning, genuinely respecting, desiring to know people. You, nobody wants to be a target. <laughs> 
So if you say, you know, this list is a target of my evangelism, that, that basically takes away the relationship, and you never saw Christ do that. Christ always, the person in front of him was the, had the full, his full attention at the moment. And I think we sometimes lose track of that when, when we think that these are, these are people who need to be objects of our evangelism rather than, than, than uh, people who we are seeking relationship with, learning God together, and then trusting, if we really believe the gospel is truth, the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts, then we can kind of chill out and just be in relationship and, and let, let God do his work through us. Jim, I'm fascinated by this. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. Just stand by for a minute. We're going to come back right after a quick time out here. I want to get updated on some traffic before we get to too far afield. We've got Jim Ramsey with us, Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. He spent 10 years with his family in Kazakhstan as a missionary and now is back here in the States, as we mentioned, um, uh, serving as Vice President of Mission Ministries for the Mission Society. And uh, he's written a recent article that caught my attention because it, I think, really calls into question uh, the way we live out our faith here in America. All of us know, you've read the headlines, you hear the stories, we know that the culture and the society in which we live is changing and continues to change. And let's face it, a lot of this is not a march uh, back toward historical Christian and biblical values, but quite frankly, uh, in just the opposite direction. And yet we see ourselves in the middle of a culture war, and we think that means we need to pick up our guns and start fighting the enemy. Uh, but, But who is the enemy here? And are they people that are, you know, again, notches on the holster? Oh, we won one more? Is that what we were? They're, they're on a list, as Jim suggests? Or is it a matter of learning how to live out our faith missionally in an ever-increasing hostile non-Christian environment, in sort of that post-Christian environment that Francis Schaeffer spoke and wrote of, and, and, and to do so in understanding then ultimately what it means to, to share our faith and to lovingly attract others to us. Hey, there's a new concept. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And welcome back to the conversation. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, now, Craig, wait a minute now. Guys, let's let's be fair here. Uh, this is not going to work in American culture today. I mean, when you're talking about an environment in which there is so much hostility um, uh, towards Christianity, how can we ever hope to be successful at this? And yet, uh, Jim Ramsey, I have to point to what we see taking place with, let's say, the church in China today, where hostility, my goodness, exists not only institutionalized at the government level and local level, even by individuals in many villages and communities where, let's face it, even even as we saw the spread of Christianity uh, here over the last 50, 60 years since the beginning of, of communism there, it's taken place without many of the so-called traditional trappings of, of um, Christianity in the West, meaning they don't have open evangelistic meetings, they don't do uh, Christian radio or television, you can't openly preach. Uh, there's many things that we see as sort of the necessary necessary tools of sharing the gospel in the West that are completely absent in a place like communist China, and yet the church there is growing by leaps and bounds in one of the most hostile environments possible. That suggests to me that this idea of of growing the church as we share our faith in a hostile culture or a hostile environment is, is not only quite possible, but is happening today. Absolutely, and I think if you look historically, the church often has has been strongest when it's persecuted. Now, you know, I'm I'm certainly not someone who's eager to see that happen here, 
but you're right, history shows that. I mean, look at the early church, just the very beginning. I mean, the church starts with these, this ragtag group of disciples, certainly in an extremely hostile environment. I mean, I've not seen too many Christians in America have been taken out to the, uh, the Colosseum and, and given to the animals. And yet, and yet the church grew rapidly during those first couple hundred years, and it was because people were living out their faith in community in a very hostile environment, and people took notice of that. And so, um, and that is, you're right, that's exactly what we see in China. I heard a Chinese believer one time uh, said this, I, I wish I could attribute the quote to the right person. He said, yes, in China we follow the Communist Party plan for, for church growth. <laughs> what the Communist Party plan for church growth? He said, yes. He says, we don't have seminary trained pastors. Um, we can't have more than 12 people meet together in, in a group. Um, and we can't depend on outside money. But the, uh, the Communist Party's plan for church growth. <laughs> And of course, and it's so been quite being a little bit facetious, but that that the church sometimes grows best when you have this very kind of tight knit community approach to church, rather than the larger institutional approach to church. And you know, we understand certainly the frustration. There are moments in time when we've all felt frustration with what we see taking place in our American culture today, and yet a hostile posture towards the culture is only going to be received by those in the culture as uh, Christians being hostile toward them. And it was always suggested, certainly as I've read uh, Scripture, that the best way to attract people, that they will know us by our love, that we can attract others to the love of God by showing first the love of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you, know, you started to say with the Bruce Jenner story, and I've not been following that closely. And, you know, it. I'll be quite honest, I have a hard time understanding that. But at the same time, my question is, should we expect Bruce Jenner to act like a believing evangelical Christian? And if not, then why should we be mad at him for making the choices he's made? Or, you know, are, are we mandated to love him where he is and then understand what does that look like? And this obviously raises a lot of questions that I'm, I'm myself struggling to say, what is, how does that look in a lot of these really complicated situations? But I think some of the basic problem we run into is we expect our dominant culture to behave like believers when the fact is most of them are not believers. And so we need to lose that expectation and say, what does it look like for us to act like believers in that setting? We hear a lot of the phraseology about uh, culture wars, or at war with the culture, things of this sort. And, and of course, those, some of those militaristic terms, I know, from the non-believer perspective, uh, really intimidates people, and it, it sets up a very false idea of not only who we as the Church are, but quite frankly, who, who Christ is and, and what His character is. It runs very contrary into the image we see of Scripture. Now, again, I'm not saying that God is not about righteousness, Right. And holiness, I'm not suggesting that we need to somehow pull back from uh, taking a strong stand when it comes to being salt and light. But when we talk about engaging the culture uh, from a missional standpoint, uh, and, and based on your experience in doing this, you know, on a, a full-time basis in a full-time and mission environment, when we talk about it from that viewpoint, Jim, some closing thoughts just in terms of how you see we as the church ought to be engaging the culture and society around us as we can then be most effective in reaching others for Christ. Well, a couple of these, I think, are, are critical. One thing, we, we have got to regain the concept of community. We, we somehow replace community with, with kind of church and Sunday school, which themselves are not bad things at all. Don't ever get me wrong on that. But that, that sitting in a sanctuary for an hour on Sunday and maybe even going to a, um, a Sunday school class that morning is not replacing community. So I think we have to discover community because that's what people are hungry for, 
and are attracted to. So, so we need, first off, we need as believers to be living in community. Um, and then I think, secondly, understanding that, that discipleship is the model that Jesus and the disciples use to, to, to increase the church. And so finding those relationships where we can naturally live life with people, talk about life issues with people. Um, I don't find people are not resistant to spiritual discussions. They're resistant to spiritual formulas <laughs> where we try to trivialize the, the hard issues of life. But when, we, when we're willing to engage with people in, in hard issues of life from our faith perspectives, rather than trivializing them or having pat formulaic answers, um, I've not found that people are close to that. Uh, so I think those are those are a couple things I say right off. It's just let's just be more attractive. And then absolutely, I mean I think it's I'm glad there's believers who are in politics. I'm glad there's believers who are, are out in the public square. We should pray for them and encourage them. Uh, but but I think the the militaristic language is is not helpful. And uh, it like you said it does it, it kind of spooks people because their idea of religious people already is kind of intolerant. People who want to you know, restart the Spanish Inquisition. And so if they're already thinking that, and we just kind of add yes to that understanding, it's, it's not helpful. Well, and it seems to me it's the easy way out. I mean, any of us can, can, can quote chapter and verse and engage in a good hefty round of biblical browbeating and, and, and beat somebody into submission, and we feel good about ourselves afterwards because, by golly, we told them. And that doesn't really require much of our heart, nor our life, nor our time. It's something entirely different to engage in biblical love, whereas you talked about your experiences in Kazakhstan really engaged in discipling relationships. Well, my goodness, now that really that really calls uh, me out to, to, to engage more, to invest more of my heart and my life. And as I do so, of course, you ultimately become very more effective in, 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 in introducing your Jesus to others. And so I, I guess it really is the difference between do we just want to take the easy way out and engage in biblical browbeating or really engage in biblical love? You can certainly put it that way, I think. Absolutely. Well, Jim, we appreciate the insights. It's, it's a brilliant article, and I think one that, uh, that really ought to cause all of us to pause and really take account of uh, what it means to live the missional life in America today in 2015. I'll point folks towards the website, uh, themissionsociety.org. That's themissionsociety.org, or maybe just do a Google search. You'll wind up finding it. The article is called Living Missionally in a Post-Christian Context. And our thanks to Jim Ramsey, Vice President, Mission Ministries for the Mission Society, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. If you talk about any believer, they'll probably tell you that the greatest day on the Christian calendar is Christmas, the celebration of the birth of our Savior Jesus. And while indeed that is certainly very important, Christmas without the cross is frankly irrelevant. If Jesus had just remained a baby in the manger, it's all pointless. Without the cross, you see, there's no reason to spend an entire month getting ready for the celebration of his birth. There's no reason to put up Christmas lights, play music, send cards, buy gifts, or any of it, because none of it would have mattered without the cross. You see, God sent his Son as Savior of the whole world so that people can know him, be reconciled, and walk in fellowship with him. 
Scripture tells us that for there is one God, one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He, watch for it, he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message that God has given to the world. So you see, at the end of the day, while certainly Christmas is very important, there's no day that overshadows it more than Easter. And of course, Easter could never have happened had it not been for Good Friday. Joining me right now, the founder and senior pastor of Acts Full Gospel Church, very dear friend, Bishop Bob Jackson. And Bishop Jackson, great to have you on the program. Thank you, sir. Glad to be here, Craig. Thank you. Boy, this really hones in on, I think, some important reminders for the entire Christian community that as much as we spend weeks and weeks getting prepared and all excited about the arrival of Christmas and and celebrating the birth of the babe in the manger, it really does all ring hollow if we don't have Resurrection Sunday. And, of course, that is not possible at all without what happened three days before on that Good Friday. It's absolutely true, and I, and I don't think uh, the world knows exactly what's so good about Good Friday, and I, I don't think a lot of people know why it's called Good Friday, especially when you see a man hanging on the cross with with a thorn thorn crowns on his head, with blood streaming down his forehead and and his face, and then you see the, the, his hands nailed to this cross, and you see his feet nailed to the cross, and then you see one of the soldiers take a spear and spear him in the side. And out comes out blood and water, and then finally you hear him say, it is finished, and he hangs his head and dies. What in the world could be so good about Good Friday? That's the question, Brother Craig. That's the, that's the question. And, of course, at the end of the day, if we kind of pull back the layers of that onion, we begin to realize that what's good about it is the demonstration of God's ultimate sacrifice that he would send his only begotten son to pay the price that you and I should have paid and everyone else for their sins. And that through that sacrifice on the cross and then Christ being able to get victory over death and the grave and ultimately sin on behalf of all of us. Now, therein is the glory of Resurrection Sunday, but it rings hollow without that shed blood on Good Friday, doesn't it? That's absolutely true. And and I think the... The Christian community, I, I just think it would be wonderful if we came together on Good Friday to let people know that we also celebrate the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, because without his death, as you said, a price was paid uh, with his blood on that cross that paid for all of our sins, that's first of all. And then the stripes on his back paid for all of our sicknesses and diseases. And then when you really take it further by his resurrection and he sent back the Holy Spirit, that takes care of all the demons and the devil. So we, we've got five areas that I'm looking at. You've got sins, sickness, disease, bondage, and demons that's really under the authority of the Lord Jesus and his blood. I mean, that gives the saints the victory in their lives. I mean, my God, when you're walking in that type of victory, victory over sin, victory over sickness, disease, bondage, and demons, 
my God, that's what's good about Good Friday. Amen. And, and Romans 1 reminds us that for all that you've just mentioned, sickness and disease and sin and separation from God, eternal damnation, all that goes with man's fallen condition, Romans 8, 1 tells us that he paid the price for it all. And of course, that price he paid was with his very life, and we mark that every Good Friday. You've got a special event coming up that's going to allow believers from throughout the East Bay and and really not only come together to commemorate the significance of Good Friday, but also, I think, a wonderful show of victory as we can point from the cross to the empty tomb and make this a tremendous opportunity to also proclaim him resurrected. Tell us about a very special Good Friday service coming up on Friday, April the 19th. April the 19th. April the 19th is Good Friday, and we are blessed to be able to hold a an, a Good Friday service at City Hall in the city of Oakland, number one Frank Ogawa Plaza. It's going to begin at 1130. We'll have the choirs up there. We have all the ecumenical leaders uh, coming in the city of Oakland, including Mike, uh, Bishop Michael Barber, that's over the Catholic churches here in the city of Oakland, the Baptist Ministers Union, the Bay City Baptist Ministers Union. We've got the uh, a lot of uh, the other ecumenical groups that represent a lot, 275 at least, uh, different churches that we know of that are Christian, and then a lot of non-denominational churches coming together because that's the day that every one of us, regardless of your denominational persuasion, that's the day we all can get together because every denomination certainly knows that without the cross, as you said so eloquently just a moment ago, without the cross, there'd be no resurrection. Without the cross, and boy, I feel like preaching that right there, Brother Craig, but I I just want you to know that we're coming together, and I'm hoping and praying that across the Bay Area, not just Oakland, but San Francisco and Hayward and and all up and down uh, the East Bay, wherever, you know, you can get the message to come no matter how you get there, get there. 11.30, April the 19th, number one, Franco Gala Plaza, right in front of City Hall. We're going to gather out there, and I'm praying to God that we have 25,000, 30,000 or more people coming together, you know what I'm saying, to celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus paid a price for our sins. My God, paid a price for our sicknesses and diseases, paid a price for our bondage and demonic attacks. He paid... Uh, the ultimate price by suffering and dying on the cross for you and for me and for everyone in this world. Man, that's good news. And to be able to celebrate that, my God, I think is just uh, a blessing. So I thank God for the city of Oakland and, and the mayors and all that have allowed us the opportunity to come together and come out of those four walls, come out of the closets, and let's come out there and let people know we're Christians, we're proud of being Christians, we love the Lord Jesus, and we certainly want the world to know what's really, really, really good about Good Friday. So if you're looking for a Good Friday service, perhaps you will work in the East Bay and uh, your church is a long drive away, so you're not able to participate in Easter services or Good Friday services, rather, with your church family, join the Greater Church family on Friday, April the 19th. Again, services beginning at 11 a.m. 
right there at Frank Ogawa Plaza in front of City Hall, number one Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland. And that will be, again, Good Friday, April the 19th at 11.30 a.m. You'll get more information, by the way, on the web if you go to actsfullgospel.org. That's actsfullgospel.org. And as Bishop Bob Jackson just mentioned, this is really open to everybody. So uh, it doesn't matter what your denomination is. Maybe you're a new believer and you don't even have a church home yet, and you just like to participate in the recognition of the significance of this sacrifice that was made on that first Good Friday and what it means to all of us in the power of his resurrection that we celebrate victory over death on Resurrection or Easter Sunday morning. But it all wraps around the importance of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross on behalf of all of us, which we commemorate Good Friday. Again, the date, Friday, April the 19th, 1130 a.m., downtown Oakland, number one, Frank Ogawa Plaza, right there near City Hall in Oakland. Come one, come all. Details again on the web at axfullgospel.org. That's axfullgospel.org. And our thanks to Bishop Bob Jackson for that update. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate spending some time with you. Thank you, Craig Roberts. God bless you, and, uh, and God continue to keep you. Amen. Amen. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.